0: Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for the great hymns of the faith, the wonderful spiritual songs that lift our soul heavenward, that cause us, Lord, to think of you, to worship you, to acknowledge that you are God and we are not. Lord, I thank you for sending your servants our way, that they might minister to us and bring us into your presence and now we pray that the Spirit of God would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. These things we pray in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It is an idiom which is hard to misunderstand. In English, it makes a powerful point. If you want to put someone in their place, that is, someone who talks too much but says very little, you might call them a windbag. Now, if you want to add a little bit of venom to that expression, you might add the adjective pompous or old. And say to them, they are a pompous old windbag. Now, to say that is fighting words. Those are words that will wound. It is a verbal attack. And sad to say, that particular phrase is often appropriately used for preachers and politicians. I said preachers first before politicians, but I thought of politicians before preachers. Old pompous windbag. We've worked pretty hard, labored very hard to earn that title. And sadly, it is often true. But you may be surprised to find out that the roots of that particular expression are biblical. They're found in the book of Job. In our text this morning, Job chapter 8. Job chapter 8. Job's second friend, Bildad the Shuhite, now responds to Job. Eliaphaz was the first. Job defended himself. And now Bildad, in chapter 8, begins his speech. He begins his speech with these words. How long will you say such things? (laughs) At least Eliaphaz gave something of a compliment. Bildad... He gives no compliment but goes right after Job. And then he says this. Your words are a blustering wind. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Best I can tell literally. It says you sound like a mighty wind. But I like the translation. You are a pompous old windbag. Because that's exactly what he's telling Job. You're moving the air but you're not saying anything. You're not improving the silence. You're talking, and I hear you, but you're not making any sense. And thus, the heated debate continues, which began in chapter 4, and will go all the way to chapter 27. Now, whatever the dramatic interest is in the book of Job, and it is great, whatever the uh, beauty of poetry, and it is sublime, The final value of the book of Job lies deeper than merely literature or a fantastic story. Let me just remind you of some of the major lessons that we are learning along the way and we'll continue to learn in this wonderful book of Job. The first is this, God moves in mysterious ways, right? Chapter 1 and 2, we never expected this, righteous, innocent Job, blameless Job Prosperous Job is attacked by the devil, and God gave him permission. And Job loses his possessions, loses his family in chapter 2, loses his wealth, and yet he doesn't curse God. He continues to follow God, and that is truly amazing. But the book of Job basically says that the righteous will suffer, the innocent will undergo Horrible times of trial. And there is no explanation except God moves in mysterious ways. And that's a lesson we need to learn. Secondly, we learn from the book of Job how we should suffer patiently in the midst of our trials. That's what James says. Consider the prophets. If you want to understand how to endure trials, look at the patience of Job And so we are learning that we must be patient and endure in the midst of our difficulties. Thirdly, we learn how we are to help others as they go through their suffering. And primarily, we learn how to help others by not doing what Job's three friends did. (laughs) Do exactly the opposite and you'll be a great friend. Job is the one who will say later on, miserable comforters are you all. And he's referring to all three. With friends like you, who needs enemies? And yet the book of Job shows us that good people suffer for no apparent reason. And we should not condemn. We should come and comfort. Job says those who fear God should comfort, comfort their friends even in their darkest hours. But then we also learn in the book of Job that there are crucial questions that came up in this early ancient book. The questions that are timeless, questions of life that are ageless. If the book of Job was written first of all the canonical books of Scripture, all the books that are included in the Bible, if chronologically it was written first, then we have coming to the surface in these heated debates that fascinate us, crucial questions of life that must be answered, and Job had a rough time answering them. The book finds its greatest value In biblical answers to these questions, or let me simply say in a pointed fashion, this is where Job turns to Jesus. (laughs) We read in the New Testament that Jesus is found in all the Old Testament, right? Jesus is the one who took the law and the prophets and the poets And taught from those scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke 24. So let's see Jesus in the poetry this morning. And one of these great crucial questions that comes to the surface, we're going to see in our reading today. So let's look at Bildad as he begins to argue, and correctly so, that God is a righteous and just God. Does God pervert justice Answer, class, no. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Never. This is true. And as we're going to find, many of the things that Job's three friends will say indeed are true, but then misapplied. So Bildad takes this statement that God never perverts justice and looks, look what he does with it, verse 4. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow. Now, Liphaz did the same thing. He hinted at it, but Bill Dead is far more bold. He says, your children got what they deserved. Job, I knew you were concerned about your kids when they were having their feast because you would sacrifice for them just in case they sinned. Well, they must have sinned, and now they're getting punished. And by the way, Job, you have sinned, and that's why God is punishing you. You see how you can take a truth of Scripture and misapply it? Not to understand that God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. And through the rest of chapter 8, that's what Bildad basically says. God punishes the wicked. He will bless the righteous. And when you get to Job chapter 9, Job responds by saying, Indeed, I know that this principle is true. That God is holy and just, and he doesn't pervert justice. But then Job asks this question, But how can a human being, how can a mortal, mortal being be righteous before God? His question is not so much, how can I prove my righteousness before a holy God? It's even more basic than that. How can I come as a mortal being before a holy, righteous God? I can't even get to God to argue my case and prove my innocence. You say, I'm suffering because of my sin, Bildad but I can't even stand before God to to, to mention my case, to, to prove that I'm innocent. Job says this is impossible because there is a huge distance between God and man. The theologian G. Campbell Morgan liked to call this double consciousness. And it simply means this. We need to hold two biblical truths in our thoughts at the same time, and let these thoughts inform our worldview, the way we see everything in life. The first thought is this, God is incredibly great. He is astoundingly majestic. He is immense and vast. He is infinite, right? He's infinite. What does infinite mean? No limits. No limits to his perfection and his goodness and his greatness and his glory and his power. God is transcendent and beyond all we could ever think or imagine. That's the argument Job begins in verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion and the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, and miracles that cannot be counted. Job says, I'm overwhelmed with how great God is. And that's why the thought of me ever entering entering into his presence is unthinkable. Here's the other truth we need to hold at the same time. Man is exceedingly small minuscule. We are separated from God on two levels, at least two. Infinity and morality. Infinity means that God is infinite and we are finite. We are limited, extremely limited And in the realm of morality, God is perfect and holy and we are sinful and rebels. And because of that, there's a great gulf between the two. There is a vast gap and we cannot bridge it. God is holy and man is sinful. You want to know how sinful man is? Someone will go into a synagogue in Pittsburgh and kill people for no reason except hatred this world is sick with sin <laughs> and there's no way to get to God Job says to even plead my case David said in Psalm 8 when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers and the, and the moon and stars which you have ordained what is man That you even take thought of him. You're great. We're small. It's the same idea of double consciousness. David understood that reality. And so Job goes on to show the smallness of man in verse 14. How then can I dispute with God? How can I find words To argue with him, though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy if I summoned him. Would he even respond? And if he responded, I could never say anything to win my case. It's just, God is there and I am here and there's no help. So look down at verse 32. Job says, God is not a man like me that I might answer him or that I might even confront him, that we would confront each other in court. That's not going to happen. The distance is just too great. And then he cries out, and here's the first crucial, crucial question that grabs me. Here's this ageless, timeless cry from the heart of man The question is simply this, if only there were someone to arbitrate between us. If only we had an arbitrator. The old King James uses the word "daysman," which means mediator, a facilitator, a go-between, an adjudicator, a negotiator. An umpire, a referee, a third party, someone who could bring us together. And notice this verse emphasizes not only does he arbitrate between the two parties, but he has his hand on both parties. That speaks of authority. He's got to be able to put his hand on the one party with authority and tell him what he must do and put his hand on the other party with authority and tell him what he must do. He must identify with both and have authority with both to be mediator between the two. He's the one who will establish the meeting. He's the one who will create peace, a covenant between them. And remember, this is an ancient writing that reveals the primal cry of man. And it is still man's cry today. Where is my mediator between me and God? I must have a go-between. Now, God is constantly dealing with man. All the time, God is interacting with man. In every way, every day, every man. God is dealing with us. Remember that verse from the book of Daniel? The handwriting on the wall, the feast of Belshazzar. Remember that? The last statement said this. The God you did not honor is the one who holds your life and all your ways in his hands. The whole world is in his hands. Sounds like a song. But it's the biblical truth. That God deals with man in every way, every day, every man. The book of Acts says the same thing in Acts chapter 17. God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he gives all man life and breath and everything else. And in him we live and move and have our being. Like the air is to the birds, like the sea is to the fish. So God is to man. He is our environment and he deals with us every day. He is our creator and gives us everything. Oh, God deals with man on a regular basis. But here's the problem. Man doesn't deal with God. We reject him. We don't believe in him. We don't read his word. We can do without him. You know that double consciousness where God is way up here and man is down here? We flip the order. Right? And God will do my bidding. Even Christians have the same concept in prayer that when I tell God to do something, he needs to take my orders and do it. He's my errand boy. That's what we think prayer is. And we flip. The structure. How is man then going to reach up to God? Well, he cannot, Job says. I have no mediator. There's no hope. Until we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those wonderful words written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. To that Old Testament cry of Job, where is my arbitrator? Comes the New Testament answer, Jesus is our mediator, right? For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. Here the gospel is stated beautifully. Here the essence of the gospel is declared. Jesus. Is the one who comes in and arbitrates. He does so beautifully because he is God, right? That's his nature. He is God of very God. The book of Hebrews says he is the expressed image of his person, the exact likeness and uh, uh, representation of his essence. He is God, but he is also man. He lays one hand on God and the other hand on man. Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. When did he become a man? Merry Christmas. It's the incarnation. Talk about a gift. God, who is in nature, possesses the very nature God, assumes the very nature man, and puts his hand on both and reconciles both of them because of the sacrifice that he gave. You see, he's not just in the position of a mediator. He's an active mediator because the last verse, verse 6, says he is a ransom. He doesn't just stand there and give directions. He dies (laughs) between God and man to bring God and man together. As a ransom, he satisfies the justice of that holy God that no man can stand before and answers all the questions and concerning our sin and our rebellion, he wipes it away with his sacrifice. This is how God demonstrates his love to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. This is love. And this is our great mediator. The separation was infinite. And the infinite God in the person of Christ bridges the gap. The infinite, the, the, the distance was sin. Listen to Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot save, nor his ear too heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So he will not hear until Jesus comes and takes the sin away. And his mediator brings sinful man to holy God in redemption. Now the great crucial question that Job surfaces so long ago. Is answered clearly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll see more of these. Because every book of the Bible speaks of him. It's in the cross of Christ where we see how God can save yet maintain his righteousness and bring holy God and sinful man together, the cross. Many years ago, an atheist was attending college with the hopes of becoming an Olympic diver. But he had a roommate who was a Christian, and this Christian was... Very passionate about sharing the message of Christ with his roommate. Made the atheist mad, but he had a room with this guy for the whole semester. He tried to ignore all he could from this outspoken Christian. Didn't pay much attention to his regular sermons. One night in the dorm, he couldn't sleep. And so he decided to go to the college pool to practice his diving He didn't have the key to turn the lights on, but no matter because there were huge skylights in the top of this pool room. And so it was giving enough light and he climbed up the the ladder up to the very high dive where he was going to practice his dives that night. And he went out to the end of the board and as divers often do, turned around with his toes just on the end, his back to the pool and facing the wall, put his arms out just about ready to dive. And as he did, the moonlight cast a shadow from his body on the wall in the shape of a cross. And it arrested him. And he paused and, and the words, the verses that he thought he wasn't learning from his, from his roommate now all came flooding back into his mind for all is sin and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that young swimmer was so convicted that he put his arms down, knelt on the diving board and trusted Christ as his Savior. True story. While he's praying, The night watchman comes in with the key, turns on the lights. He's also the janitor, sees the man on the diving board and says, Don't jump! Don't jump! Because that night he had emptied the pool to clean it. And there was no water in the pool at all. And the guy thought, I've been saved from death. But I've been saved from eternal death. By the grace of God. You will die sometime. It could be sooner than later. And if you don't know Christ, you will die forever. Unless you have a mediator. And there's only one. And I present to you, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man who died in your place so that you would never die. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there may be someone here this morning who has never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've been putting it off and ignoring all the messages that you've sent their way. May today be the day that they repent and believe. May today be the day when they confess that they are a sinner and they cry out to you in faith, Lord, be my mediator and save me. And then, Lord, for all of those who have trusted Christ, may our hearts rejoice that we have an answer to Job's question. Our mediator is none other than God himself. In your name we pray. Amen.